is Our American Stories, and we like to talk to people from all walks of life. We're about to hear from a guy who has an interesting hobby. He's a black man who collects Ku Klux Klan robes. While hate groups like the Klan have dwindled from a population over a million in the 1920s to somewhere between 3,000 to 5,000 members across the entire country today, our guest became fascinated with what makes people like this tick at a very young age. Here's Jesse. You've probably seen Daryl Davis on TV. Welcome back. We are about to bring you an almost unbelievable story out into the open. Ask yourself, how willing would you be to make friends with someone who hates you because of your skin color? Well, that's exactly why the man you're about to meet caught our attention. He's the black guy known for his uncanny ability to convert KKK members into kind-hearted, everyday Americans such as yourself. Daryl flips Klansmen like he's flipping houses. He always likes to keep a little trophy. They were given to me by active Klan members who left the organization. This is the robe of an Imperial wizard. Okay, this is the the top guy. And uh, blue or purple, your choice, designates the Imperial level. Again, this is a white cotton robe with blue adornments. I keep a lot of them locked up off-site. But I would guess, you know, I, I got three recently. And I would guess maybe I have between 40, 42, 44. Now we'll get back to his robe collection soon enough, because the Daryl Davis story starts with music. Chuck Berry had a very profound impact on me. The man was a genius. You know, many people can say that they wrote a song. Many people can say that they played a song. But few people can claim that they invented a genre of music. And Chuck Berry certainly did that. We would not have rock and roll without Chuck Berry. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans Way back up in the woods among the evergreens There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood Where lived a country boy named Johnny B. Good Who never ever learned to read or write so well But he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell Go, go! And uh, when I first uh, heard Chuck Berry, I fell in love with that music And when I saw him, I changed my whole career trajectory that I was on as a kid while Daryl Davis was discovering his love for music, rock and roll was breaking down racial barriers among white and black kids who are now beginning to dance with each other. The invention of rock and roll by people like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, uh, Fast Domino, Bo Diddley, and the popularization of it by people like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley, and the Comets. When white kids and black kids heard that new rhythm, that new beat, that boogie-woogie with a backbeat to it, they could not sit still. They bounced up out of their chairs, knocked the ropes over and the signs over, and the next thing you know, they were boogieing and dancing in the aisles together for the first time in the history of this country. Police would come in, shut down the show. So rock and roll had brought white youth and black youth together through music. The same thing that great civil rights activists like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and many other ones, black and white, were trying to achieve through their marches, through their demonstrations, their sit-ins, their boycotts, in efforts to bring white and black adults together. Chuck Berry and Elvis were achieving this through music. While rock and roll was bringing the country together, it was around this time that Daryl Davis had his first encounter with racism. When I was a kid, I had a racist incident 
while marching with the uh, Cub Scouts. I had people throwing uh, rocks and bottles at me, you know, white spectators. And I, I did not understand why I was the target. And then when racism was explained to me, I could not accept it. I'd never heard of racism, and I could not get my head around the idea that someone who had never spoken to me, someone who knew nothing about me or, or had ever seen me before, would want to hurt me for no other reason than the color of my skin. And I formed a question at the age of 10, 1968, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And I've been seeking that answer now for the next, you know, 49 years. And I, I bought books on black supremacy, white supremacy, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, looking for the answer in these books. And I couldn't find it. So in my adult life, I figured, well, who better to ask than someone who would join an organization that is reputed to believe that somebody else is inferior who does not look like them or believe as they believe based on the color of their skin or their religious beliefs. So I decided I would seek out clan members and ask them to answer the question, and then I would get my answer. So Daryl set out on his lifetime quest and eventually set up a meeting with the clan. He was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. Now, a state leader is what's known as a Grand Dragon, which we would call a governor, oversees the entire state. Uh, and then the, the top guy, the national guy who oversees all the states, which we would call a president, that person is known as the Imperial Wizard. So the Grand Dragon, his name was Roger Kelly, and he went from Grand Dragon eventually to Imperial Wizard. He was the first one that I met and sat down with and had a conversation. Daryl met with the Klansmen who were dressed in full regalia, not knowing the person they were about to be interviewed by was a black man. Well, he showed up with his bodyguard, which is called a Grand Nighthawk. A Grand Nighthawk is the bodyguard to the Grand Dragon, like, a grand, uh, like an Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard for the Imperial Wizard. So this Grand Nighthawk walked into the room first, and he was wearing military camouflage uh, fatigues, with the Mayok, the blood drop emblem right here, and uh, the initials KKK right here on his chest, uh, embroidered across his beret on his head were Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And on his hip, he had a, a semi-automatic handgun in a holster. He came in and he was followed right behind him by, uh, by Mr. Kelly, the Grand Dragon, in a dark blue suit and tie. When the Nighthawk entered the room and turned the corner and saw me, he just froze. And Mr. Kelly bumped into his back because the guy had stopped short. And they stumbled and regained their balance, looking all around the room. And I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, you know, either the desk clerk, you know, gave them the wrong room number, or this was a setup. This is an ambush. So I went like this to, to display my hands, nothing in them. And I stood up and I approached him. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly. My name is Daryl Davis. Come on in. He, both he and the Nighthawk, shook my hand. So far, so good. And they both came in. When we come back, Daryl Davis meets with the Ku Klux Klan. This is Our American Stories.
return to Jesse's story, his segment with Daryl Davis, the black dude who collects KKK robes. Now, the meeting began, as you might suspect, a Klansman surprise black guy meeting to go. They insulted our friend Daryl here to his face. Well, we, you know, we began you know, talking back and forth. Uh, he let me know that um, I was inferior because I was black. And I was expecting stuff like that because, you know, I read all these books on the Klan already, so I knew the mentality. But I wanted you know, to draw everything out of him to find out, you know, how can he hate me when he doesn't even know me and hasn't even given me a chance to express myself and see if he still has those feelings. I asked him to have a seat. He sat down. He asked me for some identification, and I gave that to him. And then we uh, proceeded with this uh, interview. Now, I had a bag beside me, and in my bag, I had a copy of the Bible, because the Ku Klux Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they also claim that the Bible preaches racial separation. Now, in my reading of the Bible, I'd never seen that in there, so I wanted to be able to pull out my Bible and say, here, please show me chapter and verse, where it says blacks and whites must be separate. Then there was a moment of tension. A little later on in the interview, there was kind of a strange noise in the room, and we all jumped. And I just knew that Mr. Kelly had made the noise, because I didn't make it. And because I could not discern what the noise was, I perceived it to be ominous and threatening. And plus, I was hearing that voice in my head, Daryl, don't, don't fool with Roger, Roger Kelly, he'll kill you, kind of thing. And I was ready to attack. You know, my eyes had locked with his eyes, because I'm looking at him like, what did you just do? I didn't say that, but my eyes were speaking to him. His eyes had locked with mine, and I could read the expression in his eyes, which were saying to me, what did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun, looking back and forth between the two of us, like, what did either one of you all just do? The ice in the bucket had melted, and the cans of soda shifted, and that's what made the noise. And then we all began laughing at how ignorant we all had been. <laughs> but the teaching moment was this. All because some foreign, and underscore highlight the word foreign, entity of which we were ignorant, that being the bucket of ice and cans of soda, entered into our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we became fearful and accusatory of one another. So the lesson learned is ignorance breeds fear. If you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will, be, will breed hatred because we hate those things that frighten us. If you don't keep that hatred in check, that hatred will breed destruction. What happens next between Daryl Davis and the Klansmen is incredible. We became, you know, the best of friends. Well, it might be hard for us to understand how a black guy becomes friends with another guy who's proud and outspoken of his affiliation with the Ku Klux Klan. It helps to understand more about how Daryl Davis was raised. Uh, my parents were U.S. Foreign Service, so I spent a lot of time, you know, overseas in various countries around the world uh, with, you know, as an American embassy brat. And today, as a professional musician, I travel all over this country and around the world. If you combine my travels as a child with now my travels as an adult, I've been in 53 different countries on six continents. Because I was exposed early on to many, many different cultures, ethnicities, nationalities, traditions, colors, religions, etc. And all of that helped shape 
who I've become. And I saw people from all over the world getting along with each other. When I was in grade school overseas, you know, I'd be over there for two years and come back home, be here for a few months or a year, and then go back to another country. When I was a kid in the, in the 1960s in, in uh, elementary school, my classes were filled with other kids from Nigeria, Italy, Japan, Russia, France, Germany. Anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their kids, we all went to the same school. And that's how I grew up. If you were to peep your head into my classroom door, you would say, that looks like a United Nations of little kids. That scenario was not here, back here in my own country, in the U.S. When I would return, I would either be in newly integrated or still segregated schools that had not quite gotten there yet. So I was either surrounded by all black people or black and white people. Today, when you walk into a, a uh, school classroom, you see what I saw. But back then, I was living 12 to 15 years ahead of my time. While Daryl might continue to be 12 to 15 years ahead of his time, even he became the target of Black Lives Matter. In his Netflix documentary called Accidental Courtesy, Daryl is confronted by a young BLM activist. Time going into people's houses that don't love you, a house where they want to throw you under the basement. So you believe that nobody can change? No, you, I believe you believe the wrong people can change. What do you mean the wrong people can change? White supremacists can't change. You don't believe they can change? White, no, white supremacists can't change. But I can change your mind because you look like me. You ain't doing nothing but collecting something that's going to build your own credibility. You're nothing but a pimp in a pulpit. And you're nothing but ignorant. Daryl later said that he befriended that young BLM activist and that they came to an understanding. In the same way that Daryl brings understanding to so many others, it all started with that simple question that came to him at the age of 10. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? One of my very favorite quotes of all time is um, by Mark Twain. It's called the travel quote. And Mark Twain says, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. We'd like to close our look into the life of Daryl Davis on a note that has absolutely nothing to do with race. While he's passionate about bringing people together, it's not the only aspect of what makes Daryl Davis an interesting person. He shared with us a fond childhood memory of the time he crossed paths with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Bruce Springsteen, all on the same day. Well, Chuck Berry was coming to uh, Coalfield House at University of Maryland, the sports arena there. It was going to be Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. And, uh, of course, I got down there super early, hoping I would, you know, be able to sneak in and maybe meet him during sound check or rehearsal. Because I knew that the promoter had to supply a uh, backing band for him. So the concert uh, would not begin until, like, about 8 p.m. that evening. And I was a kid. I got a ride down there. And um, around noontime, you know, like eight hours before showtime, and the hangar doors were open, people were like bringing in equipment and speakers and lights and things like that. I, I just walked on in. Nobody stopped me. Um, so I said, you know, there was no security there at that particular time. And so I just hung out back there, stayed out of everybody's way. Uh, the band came 
and I moved over near the stage where the band was, figuring that when Chuck comes for this sound check, you know, I'll get to see my idol and meet him or whatever. And the band was very nervous. Uh, they'd never worked with Chuck Berry before. They were down from New Jersey to, uh, to play for him. And their sound check was at 2 o'clock. So they assumed that he would be there around 2 o'clock. Well, 2 o'clock rolled around and no Chuck Berry. <laughs> and uh, they even got more nervous. And so they went on stage, they did their sound check, they ran through some Chuck Berry songs, and they sounded fantastic. And, uh, you know, the hours ticked by and still no Chuck Berry. And so um, they went on at the, you know, at the beginning of the show, you know, did a short set. And then uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, came and I got to meet him. And uh, he came on and did his thing, still no Chuck Berry. And about, about 15 minutes or so before uh, Jerry Lee finished, in walked Chuck Berry through the backstage door. He came in just by himself, no guitar, nothing. And he walked right by me and I froze. I thought, oh, you know, because, you know, it was like total shock. He went right by me, and there was somebody standing down the hallway, and he stopped and spoke with that person. I don't know what he said, but in retrospect, I do. That person pointed further down the hallway to a door, and Chuck, you know, went down and went inside that door. And a few minutes later, he came back out, went right back by me again, back outside the backstage door, and then he returned with his guitar. And so, in retrospect, what happened was he went down to the promoter's office to get paid up front, and then he went and got his guitar. And he doesn't bring his guitar in until he, until he has money. So, um, brought his guitar in, and then, you know, I was standing over there near where the band was. He came over, and um, the band leader walked up to him. He's like taking his guitar out of the case and said, Hi, you know, my name is Bruce Springsteen. We're your, you know, we're your backup band. We thought you were going to be here this afternoon. Just said, no, you know, just totally oblivious. And um, he said, uh, we ran through some of your songs. I, you know, I think everything should be okay. Do you know which ones you know, you're going to play tonight? And Chuck said something to the effect of, I think I'll play some Chuck Berry. <laughs> and he went on stage. The band went on right after him. And he like, just like, you know, went right into it. No key, no count off, nothing. And the band was right there with him. And that just kind of like just blew my mind. And that is the story of the one and only Daryl Davis. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports to history and, of course, the sciences. And we read a book review in the Wall Street Journal called It Never Hurts to Ask, and it was all about a book called Why? What Makes Us Curious? And the writer joins us, Professor Mario Livio. He's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at UNLV, and he worked at the Hubble Telescope for 24 years. And thanks for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Well, let's talk about astrophysics first. What is it, and why were you curious about that? Because that obviously led to your life's work, sir. Well, astrophysics is really about understanding the universe, and by that I mean from the universe at large, you know, 
why the universe expands, uh, what is the evolution of the universe, uh, to understanding how galaxies form, how stars form, how planets form, uh, how life emerged in the universe. All of that belongs to astrophysics. And talk about now your, your quest to dig into this space called curiosity, because I think this is what separates man from everybody else, is the degree to which we're curious and what we do about it. Um, right. So talk about that. So, indeed, humans are, are really quite unique in the fact that they ask why, uh, even about unseen causes. Um, animals are curious, too, but they don't normally ask why, and especially not about things that they cannot directly see. Um, so uh, I was always a very curious person, uh, and at one point I just became very curious about curiosity itself. So, you know, I decided to spend uh, more than four years uh, studying, you know, what research has been done in psychology and neuroscience about curiosity. Uh, I spoke with many researchers in the field, uh, visited some labs and so on, and uh, that's the result is this book. Are we naturally curious, or is it something we develop? Is there a curiosity gene, to be so blunt? Uh, (laughs) Yes. So we are naturally curious in the sense that Studies show that uh, 40 to 50 percent of uh, this trait of curiosity, as with many other psychological traits, are genetic. Uh, namely, if your parents were very curious, your grandparents were very curious, chances are you'll also be a very curious person. So, so some part of it is genetic. But, of course, there, there, is, there are other parts that are, um, you know, just environmental and depending on your particular circumstances. I mean, it depends on your parents and how they they taught you, your teachers, uh, maybe the church you go to, um, things of that nature, the environment in which we live. I mean, does that allow you the luxury of being curious about certain things and not about others and so on? Well, curiosity has done a lot for humankind. I mean, you posit that it's kept us alive in many respects. And if, if, if anything, it's expanded our life expectancies and so many other things from the creation of fire, which I think is, you know, we can take it all the way back there. That was curiosity itself, wasn't it? The unseen, and the next thing you know, we're creating this thing out of nothing. That's right. So, so curiosity in, indeed drives, of course, all scientific research. Uh, it drives the process of education. It plays a role, you know, in books we write, films we see, and even simple conversations. I mean, you don't want to have a conversation with somebody unless you're somewhat curious about what they have to say. Um, and indeed, it goes back all the way to the pre-humans and the very early humans who had to be curious about, you know, what does fire do? You know, how can I use that? Uh, what do tools do? And, and things of that nature that expanded both the diet of the early humans and, uh, you know, the fact that uh, they c- could start to do all kinds of other things that they couldn't before. Let's talk about the two dimensions of curiosity that you talk about in your book. And one of them has to do with, let's just say, the senses, and the other with the intellect. Um, talk about those two things. So uh, there are various types of curiosity. So one curiosity is, for example, it has been dubbed perceptual curiosity. That's the curiosity we feel when something surprises us or when something that we see doesn't quite agree with what we know or at least think we know. Um, You know, think, for example, you know, of uh, some children in some remote village 
in in South America seeing a white person for the very first time. Things of that type, things that really surprise you. Then there is epistemic curiosity. Epistemic curiosity is the real love of knowledge. It's what drives us to learn things. It's that pleasure, you know, or anticipation of pleasure that coming from new knowledge. And that's uniquely, as, you, as we had said before, that is just uniquely human. That's uh, right. That's a, that's a characteristic that is uniquely human. Now let's talk about some people. Um, let's talk about some curious people, and two that you feature. Well, let's talk about one first, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. So Leonardo has been uh, called uh, by uh, uh, Kenneth Clark, the art critic, the most relentlessly curious mind in history. And indeed, you know, here is a person, you know, of course we know him from his works of art, the Mona Lisa and all that, but he was really curious about everything. I mean, he has, you know, he has left us with some 7,000 pages of notes, and probably there were maybe double that when he lived. And in, in those, he studies everything from the flow of water to the flight of birds to how do you paint to uh, how long is uh, the tongue of the woodpecker. I mean, he was literally interested in everything around him, except perhaps politics, which was a very good thing because he lived at the time of the Borgias and they basically killed anybody who got involved in politics. Indeed, indeed. And, and you know, we had just spent some time with David McCullough not long ago. And the curiosity of the Wright brothers was remarkable. I mean, these two guys just kept going at it. And they were curious, and they tested, and they were curious. And in their own way, they were hobbyists. But they were doing things that, well, Leonardo was thinking about and puzzled over himself. That curiosity drove them, too. Right. You're absolutely right. Of course, you you know, I mean, not all were his ideas. I mean, a, a little bit fewer than the things we think were, you know, there were things that were in the air at the time. But the fact that he was interested in all of those is what makes him so absolutely unique. Indeed, indeed. And, and very few people have that kind of mind and that level and breadth and depth of curiosity. Let's talk about that other person you talk about in the book, Richard Feynman. And by the way, who is he for folks who may not have ever heard his name? Yeah, so Richard Feynman was uh, one of the most uh, celebrated physicists uh, of the 20th century. He worked in almost every area of physics and also a Nobel laureate in physics. Um, But in addition to everything he did in physics, he was interested in so many other things. He was a bongo drummer. Uh, He studied how to draw. Uh, He was an expert in uh, cracking safes. Uh, He uh, was uh, an expert in Mayan hieroglyphs and things like this. So he was, again, a sort of a Leonardo-type person, although more, you know, in the sciences uh, than uh, in the arts, uh, but, but really a person that found everything interesting. He basically said, everything is interesting if you look into it deeply enough. And you coined a phrase, curiosity is the best remedy for fear. Talk about that. Yes. You see, very often things we're fearful about or afraid of are things that we just don't know much about or we don't understand. And by actually learning more about them and trying to understand them better, we actually can get rid of that fear. And and that's why I, I truly strongly believe in this statement that curiosity is the best remedy for fear. And indeed, uh, you you sort of intimate that curiosity is better than bravery for overcoming fear. Yes. 
uh, curiosity uh, very often will drive people to do uh, more risky things than, you know, uh, you just associate with brave people. Right. I think brave people intimates risk and risk-taking and uh, curiosity. Well, you just got to follow it down. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation. The book, Why, What Makes Us Curious, and we're curious about this book. We continue our conversation with Professor Mario Livio after these commercial messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we return with Professor Mario Livio, an adjunct professor at UNLV. He worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years, and he's an astrophysicist. And we continue our conversation on his new book, Why? What Makes Us Curious? We read a terrific Wall Street Journal review, and we just had to dig in and get the book. Let's dig into some of the deeper things about this book and some of the depth here. Isn't the beginning of learning admitting you don't know something? Oh, yes. Uh, that actually, you know, marked the, the change from the Middle Ages into, you know, Renaissance and eventually into what we call the Enlightenment. I mean, what happened in the Middle Ages is that various entities uh, and regimes basically tried to convince the people that they know everything or they know everything that needs to be known. And it is really that change where in the Enlightenment, when suddenly people said, wait a second, actually, we almost don't know anything, everything we have to learn. That is really what caused, you know, all this enormous change and then the beginning of modern science, modern arts and all that. And talk about the Enlightenment, if you can, because there were many challenges to many institutions because of the Enlightenment. And in the end, curiosity can be dangerous to regimes. You're right. Uh, you see, various oppressive regimes uh, find it, I think, more convenient for people to be less curious and ask fewer questions. And, you know, you might think that this is something that, oh, well, maybe, you know, in the Middle Ages and things like this. Uh, but you see this today. I mean, you, you know, you have regimes, you know, such as the Taliban, uh, who, you know, they destroyed these Buddhas of Bamiyan, this enormous, you know, 100 feet statues that existed, you know, since the 6th century. Or, you know, they shot in the head that young Pakistani girl, you know, Malala Yousafzai, uh, because she advocated education for young girls. Uh, so you see, even today, you know, these attempts to suppress curiosity. And, and the, the move to enlightenment is really when you realize that you should let uh, your curiosity be free. Well, and I think that that gets to the larger point. Curiosity is power. 
in the end. And, and power generally feels threatened by curiosity. You're right. I mean, at least there are such, such powers that feel threatened by curiosity because it's sometimes easier to, um, you, you know, especially when, when for, for oppressive regimes, you know, it's easier to control people when they don't, don't know things rather than, you know, going the other way and for the regime to become more enlightened. Indeed. And I think the second you start to ask even why of a government, and that becomes a dangerous question, even that kind of curiosity uh, wants to be suppressed by certain types of dictatorships, and we've learned this throughout history. What happens when you when you deny people their curiosity? In the end, the regimes suffer. It's not even in their interest, is it, to suppress the curiosity of your own people? In the long term, of course, it isn't. I mean, because those those kind of societies, they at the end, you know, they lag behind in terms of uh, development, in terms of, uh, you know, science, in terms of uh, developing uh, the humanities, the arts, and all that. I mean, it's remarkable what's happened because of curiosity. Uh, Let's talk about some of the technology today. Do you think in the end that the Facebook, the Googles, uh, artificial intelligence are going to benefit curiosity, hinder, or is it a mixed bag? Well, I think it is somewhat a mixed bag, but I think that overall it's a good thing. And I'll, I'll tell you why. One type of curiosity, which is called specific curiosity, which is, you know, when you need to know a very particular thing, like uh, what was the name of the actor in that movie or something like that, uh, that actually, you know, um, the availability of information at our fingertips literally, you know, can satisfy that very quickly. I mean, you know, once you maybe had to struggle for hours to try to remember that name, now you can Google it right away and find it. So that type of curiosity indeed is kind of hindered a little bit in some sense by, by the availability of these tools. But at the other, on the other hand, the important things really are helped by all the, the availability of these, uh, you know, digital tools. Because remember... You know, for example, questions that science asks, new questions that you want to research. I mean, those are questions to which you don't know the answers. So you are not going to find the answers on the Internet. So all you are going to find on the Internet is to find information that maybe will help you to investigate this further. So in that respect, I find, for example, that the Internet really enhances my curiosity because I can satisfy the simple things relatively fast, but then, you know, that allows me to find more information to dig deeper. It also allows people on platforms to connect and question each other and talk to each other in ways never before imagined, Professor. You're exactly right. I mean, you know, I mean, in, at the time of Leonardo and so on, I mean, everything, you know, was communicated by, by, by writing letters. And even those letters, uh, you know, were, were done on paper, which was not cheap. Uh, and so on, and it took forever, you know, to get to where it needed to be. So you're right. I mean, the communication is so much faster, so uh, the passage of information is so much faster. Uh, the storage of information is, of course, completely different and all that. So uh, that, that at the end, those are the types of things that help curiosity. How do we cultivate, for the folks listening, we have uh, over a million people listening to our show now, uh, and I'm sure they're, they're wondering, I have kids even for myself, how do I cultivate this thing called curiosity? Can I cultivate it? Yes, it can be cultivated. And, you know, I, I would not claim to be an expert on this, but let me suggest a few things. 
Uh, one thing is, of course, to ask many questions. And, of course, the other thing is that they ask many questions. The kids tend to ask many questions. Try not to answer the questions immediately, but try to answer them in the following way. You know, they ask you, why that and that and that? So you try to answer, well, why do you think it's that? And then the kid would say something, and then he would say, okay, so let's test that. If that is the correct answer, then it also means that that and that, and so on. And that's how you, you know, drive epistemic curiosity. Another thing that is very, very important, in my opinion, is that you should always start with something the child is already curious about. For, for example, you know, most young children are interested in dinosaurs. So start science lessons with dinosaurs because they're already curious about those. And from that, you can then lead to other things, you know, you think they should know. You know, for example, you want to teach them about free fall acceleration on Earth, okay? They may be bored by that. But they, you talk to them about dinosaurs, and then you say, well, dinosaurs actually became extinct. And you know why? Because an asteroid hit Earth and, you know, killed all the dinosaurs. Uh, you know why the asteroid hit Earth? Because it had accelerated towards the Earth because of the Earth's gravity. So you started with something they were curious about, and you led them to something that you wanted them to know. You know, and it's interesting because you're digging into something I think about a lot, and that is where the science, the sciences and story combine and converge is in large measure what you're doing is telling the kids a scientific story and it's through questions and answers and this process that you're driving their curiosity. But my goodness, look at how the story plays a part and the idea of story plays a part. What, how important is story to curiosity? Oh, story is extremely important. I mean, you, you, would, you know, people like stories. People love storytelling. Uh, I actually start, I started the book with a very short story by, by this American author, Kate Chopin which is called The Story of an Hour. Uh, and, and the reason I started it with that is because I was so impressed with her ability to create curiosity with almost every sentence. You know, almost every sentence heads, ends with some sort of an intellectual cliffhanger, and you want to read the next sentence. And that's a powerful thing, and we should keep that all in mind. One thing that surprised you, as we leave this interview, what's the one thing that surprised you in your research, Professor? Uh, there were a number of things that surprised me. I mean, for example, that difference between perceptual and epistemic curiosity, the curiosity we feel when we're surprised and curiosity we feel when, you know, we really love to learn. Uh, I didn't realize that those, you know, actually activated different parts of our brain and were associated in one case with an unpleasant state in the other with a pleasant state. That surprised me. Another thing that it's amazed me, actually, was that, you know, I thought that curiosity is such an important topic that, you know, lots of neuroscientists and psychologists would be working on that. And I was surprised to actually see how, you know, a relatively small number of people are working on that. Of course, you know, consciousness is such a big thing, and curiosity is just a part of it, and so neuroscientists are working on many other things. But I was still surprised that, relatively not more people are, are working on curiosity specifically. Well, we're happy you did. The book is Why, What Makes Us Curious. The author, Professor Mario Livio, and he's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and he also worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me. 
Mountain man and buckskin tan help keep this country free. With buffalo gun and beaver trap, you didn't even have a map. The Rocky Mountains he called home, he only lived just further roam. Carson, Carson, old Kit Carson. Mountain man and buckskin tan help keep this country free. This is Our American Stories, and you were listening to Fess Parker singing old Kit Carson. And Kit Carson is one of the most complex characters in American history. We stumbled upon his story in Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2, Creating and Civilizing the American West by Phil Lanchett. And we've done some stories on Volume 1 of his great book. Carson's epic adventure in war and exploration embody the American spirit and its struggle for identity, the good, the bad, that come with the great conquest of the American West. All are summed up in this one man's epic life. And now we're about to bring you the story of Kit Carson, and it's driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and one of America's best storytellers about the American West. The mountain men were responsible for blazing nearly every trail to the Pacific coast, for discovering the natural wonders of the trans-Mississippi West, and for providing the muscle that fueled the fur trade. Yet few gained national recognition. An outstanding exception is Kit Carson, who becomes the most famous mountain man of them all. Kit Carson is portrayed heroically in books and articles, and as a character in movies. He is also the subject of a television series. He is one of those figures who made us proud to be an American and whetted the youthful appetite for grand adventures. Carson is present at the creation, it seems. He has witnessed the dawn of the trans-Mississippi American West in all its vividness and brutality. Place names throughout the West recall Kit Carson. There's Carson Pass and the Carson River in the Sierras. In Nevada, there's Carson Valley and Carson City, the capital of Nevada. There's the military post Fort Carson and the town Kit Carson in Colorado. One of Colorado's highest mountains is Kit Carson Peak in the Sangre de Cristo Range. And in Taos, New Mexico, there's Kit Carson Park. Christopher Houston Carson is born in a log cabin on Christmas Eve, 1809, in Madison County, Kentucky, the same year in the same state in which Abraham Lincoln is born. The 11th in a line of 15 siblings, he is nicknamed Kit while still an infant, and the name sticks. When he is two, his Scotch-Irish family picks up and migrates westward to a farm near Boone's Lick, Missouri, home of the Daniel Boone clan. Here's Memphis native Hampton Sides, author of the national bestseller, Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West. His family was good friends with the Boone family. They intermarried. These were backwoodsmen. They were rough and ready folks who uh, were in search of opportunity. 
For their own safety, the Carsons and other pioneers at Boone's Lick dwell in a state of perpetual vigilance. They live in sturdy cabins built near forts and well-armed sentries patrol constantly. All cabins are designed with rifle loopholes or firing ports in case of an Indian attack. Everyone knew a family whose child or mother had been carried off by Indians. Kit's sister, Mary, recalls, We would carry bits of red cloth with us to drop if we were captured by Indians so our people could trace us. Despite all this, the young Kit Carson plays with Indian children whose parents come to Boone's Lick to trade goods. From an early age, Kit learns that Indians are not monolithic, that tribes could differ substantially and violently from one another, and that each group must be dealt with separately on its own terms. Kit is not quite nine when his father is killed while felling a tree and the large Carson family is left in desperate straits. Kit drops out of school to work full-time on the family farm and hunts in his spare time to help put meat on the table. At 14 years old, Kit is apprenticed at a saddlery. The teenager hates both the work and the confinement in the saddle shop, but it proves to be a blessing in disguise. Many of the shop's customers are trappers, traders, teamsters, or scouts on the Santa Fe Trail. They're stirring tales of the way west and what lay over the far horizon sets the boy's imagination afire. Here's the executive director of the Western History Association, Paul Hutton. The West offers boundless opportunity, the freedom from all the restraints of family, all the restraints of a shopkeeper's life, and of course, the promise of adventure, of danger, of excitement. And so he runs away. He, he does a Huck Finn and lights out for the territories. At 16 in August, 1826, Kit turns a boy's adventure into a man's livelihood when he crosses the Missouri border and heads west with a merchant caravan on the newly opened Santa Fe Trail. After 900 miles on the trail, Carson settles in Taos, New Mexico, where he develops fluency in Spanish, French, and a half dozen Indian tongues. And he also masters the universal sign language used by Western tribes. And yet, for all his facility with language, Kit Carson is illiterate. Taos is the capital of the southwestern fur trade, teeming with trappers, Americans, Frenchmen, Canadians, all of them scruffy and sunburned after months spent trapping in the Rockies. Carson wanted to be a part of this fraternity of men, and these greasy, grizzled, hairy, often drunk, international cast of characters who knew the rivers of the West and had been to all these amazing places. Uh, he wanted to be one of these guys as quickly as they'd have him. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson, his story, here on Our American Stories. 
And we return to the life of Kit Carson, as told and driven by Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Let's pick up where we left off. In 1829, and not yet 20 years old, Carson joins a fur trapping brigade of 40 mountain men who venture into Arizona, most of which is still untouched by fur trappers. There probably was not a more dangerous profession in America at that time uh, than being a mountain man. There was the danger of grizzly bears, hypothermia, starvation. These men went into trackless wilderness for months at a time, all in pursuit of beaver pelts. But the greatest reason why so few mountain men have ventured into Arizona territory are the Apache. The Apache delight in torturing and killing their enemies, especially the nearby Pima and Papago Indians. In this world, the trapper's best chance at survival is for himself to adapt completely and entirely to the wilderness and to know intimately the Indians and their habits and their warfare. If the mountain men could do that, they survived. If not, they died. The West is where races intersect, cultures intersect, sometimes violently, more often not. Kit Carson moves easily in that world. He's not opposed to confronting people straight on and engaging in combat, taking a scalp if need be, to make a point. But that doesn't mean he couldn't sit down and break bread the very next week. He understood what was expected of him by native peoples that he came in contact with in terms of peaceful relationships and trade relationships, but also in terms of conflict. And he understood that retribution must follow crime and follow it immediately and harshly if one was to survive in this environment. Every summer, the big fur companies organize what was known as the Mountain Man Rendezvous. And this was held high in the beaver country. It could be in Utah or Idaho or Wyoming. As always happens at these gatherings, various bands of Indians come to trade, gamble, and drink with the mountain men. And it's not uncommon for trappers to take squaws for their wives during this month-long festival. One of the most popular women attending the rendezvous of 1835 is a young Arapaho beauty named Singing Grass. She catches Carson's eye. But another man is equally smitten. He's a very large, swaggering, blustering French-Canadian trapper known as the Bully of the Mountains. He's also an expert shot. Singing Grass chooses Carson and rejects the Frenchman. Over the next several days, 
Frenchman goes on a bender and begins to menace anyone who crosses his path. After being ignored by other mountain men, he strolls over to Carson's camp and announces how he particularly enjoys thrashing Americans. Carson springs to his feet and exclaims, I'll rip your damn guts. The Frenchman says nothing but mounts his horse and rides out in front of camp, daring Carson to fight him. Carson quickly jumps on a horse and gallops up to the Frenchman. They stop so close to each other that their horses' heads touch. Both men draw guns and fire at precisely the same moment. The Frenchman's bullet creases Carson's head, taking scalp and hair with it. Carson's bullet goes through the Frenchman's right hand and blows away his thumb, causing him to drop his gun. Carson draws a second pistol and prepares to deliver the coup de grace. Gingerly holding his maimed appendage, the Frenchman begs for his life. Satisfied that he has humiliated him, Carson turns and rides away. Says Carson, We won't have any more problems with this bully Frenchman anymore, will we? Singing grass? And Carson marry after Carson offers her father a bride price of five blankets, three mules, and a gun. Carson is 25 years old. Like many of the trappers, Carson settled down with an American Indian woman. He found that this marriage was certainly a marriage of convenience in the sense that he had someone on the trail with him who helped do all the thousand and one tasks that had to be done. But it was the first love of his life. He was devoted to her. After giving birth to their second daughter in 1840, Singing Grass dies of complications. And then shortly later in an accident, the baby dies. She was a good wife to me, Carson tells a friend years later. I never came in from hunting that she didn't have warm water ready for my cold feet. Adding to Kit's pain, America is experiencing intense growing pains. The era of the mountain man is coming to an end. Decades of trapping has destroyed the beaver population, and the once fashionable beaver hat is now being replaced with one made of silk. Every summer throughout the 1840s, there were fewer and fewer beaver pelts. And this was a, a consequence of just how amazingly good these guys were at what they did. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. We trapped down the river, but found no beaver. The country was barren. It became necessary to try our hand at something else. The beaver market collapses, and Carson finds himself out of work, widowed, and shouldering the burdens of parenthood alone. He is 29. With his pockets empty and his future uncertain, Kit brings his daughter Adeline east and leaves her with family in Missouri to make sure she receives the education he never had and to protect her from the struggle that lies ahead. But as he boards a whistling steamboat in St. Louis for a trip up the Missouri, 
his prospects change when he strikes up a conversation with a passenger. How far are you taking her? I am leading an expedition through the Rocky Mountains. You ever been to the mountains, sir? It's a far piece. It'll probably take you where you want to go. Well met, sir. John C. Fremont. Kit Carson. John C. Fremont is an American military lieutenant and an explorer who's about to embark on an expedition to survey and map the American West. And he has yet to hire a guide. Although Fremont has his doubts, he hires Carson on the spot. Carson and Fremont were kind of an odd couple from the start. Fremont is quite well-educated, a very flamboyant guy. Carson, on the other hand, is unassuming, has this wry sense of humor. Boy's gonna make it. He's always giving someone else the credit. Fremont and Carson blaze an overland route to the Pacific, a route that has already been discovered. Carson, join me with the flag. But it's virtually unused by anyone except mountain men and Indians. Look at all that out there, as far as I can see. By May of 1846, the soon-to-be-called Oregon Trail is completed. Here's Sherry Monahan, president of the Western Writers of America. They were the first people to figure out where they could ford rivers, what was the safest route where you didn't have to climb mountains, and they were the ones that led all of the pioneers out to populate and tame the Wild West. Dubbed the Pathfinder, Fremont's name reaches Lewis and Clark's status, and Carson's heroics become American legend. And when we come back, more on the life of Kit Carson. You're listening to Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And he's one of our best storytellers in this country. More on the life of Kit Carson after these messages. One of the things that Carson did during one of the expeditions with Fremont was they encountered some uh, Hispanic uh, wayfarers who had had their horses stolen from them. The New Mexicans have been attacked by Indians, and uh, the kind of mindset of the frontiersman was that you didn't allow this kind of behavior to go on, that you had to make a statement. Rather spontaneously, Carson decides to pursue these Indian horse thieves. The Indians were a large group, but nevertheless, Carson and his companion snuck up on the band, killed several of them, retrieved all the horses, brought back the horses and several Indian scalps to Fremont's camp. This really impressed Fremont, Carson risking his life for a complete stranger. 
In August 1844, Fremont has his expedition reports bound and published on nearly every page. He lavishes praise upon his fearless scout. Carson became a great romantic figure as an explorer, as a guide, as a frontiersman, as an Indian fighter. In these books that were supposed to be reports, they were actually grand adventure tales. These books were bestsellers in their day and were used as handbooks by hundreds of thousands of people going west. Here's American West historian Sally Denton. Immigrants would be in their wagons holding that and it would say, this is where you're going to find fresh water. This is where there's going to be grass where you can graze your cattle. It was really uh, the first uh, map of its kind in America. But following the unlikely pattern of his life, Carson's mission to map the Western territories is about to take on even greater significance. An unexpected dispatch arrives from the White House. It's from President Polk and the Secretary of War. President Polk is determined to push America's western border all the way to the Pacific. California, it says we are to continue our fine work in the west. Carson and Fremont's exploratory expedition has just become a military mission. I shall assert the right to that portion of our territory which lies beyond the Rocky Mountains. President Polk had a vision of what America should look like. He wanted all of it. And he vowed that he would get it all, either by purchasing or, or by war, within one term. This is the execution of Thomas Jefferson's vision for continent-wide expansion. And the term Manifest Destiny is coined 42 years after Jefferson acquired the Louisiana Territory from Napoleon in 1803. On April 25th, 1846, Mexican cavalry attacks a group of U.S. soldiers. 18 days later, Congress declares war on Mexico. It's the beginning of the Mexican War. Navy warships close in on the California coast, and Army troops advance from the east. Fremont and Carson arrive in California, and there in Northern California, they support the Bear Flaggers in the Bear Flaggers' capture of Sonoma. As a reward for his valuable service, Carson rides to Washington, D.C with a thick packet of sealed letters to deliver the good news to President Polk. But on his way, a greater duty redirects his path. Here's American frontier historian Derwood Ball. Kit Carson ran into uh, Stephen Watts Kearney leading first United States dragoons overland from Santa Fe to help finish the uh, conquest of California. I'm going back to the West Coast. Kearney ordered me to join him as his guide. I'd done so. It made me believe he had the right to order me. Kent now leads General Stephen Kearney and 300 of his cavalry troopers to California. 
And one of those cavalry troopers happens to be the son of the famous Sacagawea. Kearney also has a direct connection to the Lewis and Clark expedition. He is married to the daughter of William Clark. Now, before they get to California, they discover from some Mexicans they captured near the Arizona-California border that there's a revolt going on in California against American rule. In December of 1846, Kearney orders an attack at Mule Hill in San Pasquale, some 35 miles north of San Diego. But his weary men and exhausted mules that they're riding are outnumbered by well-trained Mexican lancers on fine horses. Americans are trapped on Mule Hill with no cover and dwindling supplies. Here's historian David Eisenbach. Don't take the shot unless you got it. It's a desperate situation. They've run out of food. The only thing they have to eat are the mules. And the only reinforcements are about 30 miles away in San Diego. Despite all this, in the finest tradition of the U.S. Cavalry, Kearney orders a charge. The battle that erupts is known as the Battle of San Pasquale. And Carson is in the thick of it from beginning to end. By the end of the second day, Kearney has lost 18 men and a dozen others, including Kearney himself, have been wounded. Kearney's last hope is to send a messenger on foot through enemy lines to get help from Marines and sailors in San Diego. Carson. We need supplies. I'll take care. Without hesitation, Kit Carson follows orders once again. When darkness falls, Carson, an Indian scout, and a Lieutenant Edward Beale begin their journey. Just before dawn, the three split up to avoid detection. We need to get barefoot. Before dawn, the three men begin their journey, but they begin it by creeping and crawling for several miles through enemy lines. Here's Kit Carson from his autobiography. I had to crawl about two miles. And having had the misfortune to lose our shoes, we had to travel barefooted in a country covered with prickly pear and rocks. And then they split up and take three different routes, about 30 miles each, to San Diego. I need to speak with the commander of this outpost immediately. Within hours, Commodore Stockton sends a force of 200 Marines and sailors to San Pasquale. And the Mexican army, seeing them come, gallops away. Kit stays behind, unable to walk for a week because of the condition of his feet. A year later, the U.S. concludes the Mexican War. And through the Mexican Cession, acquires another 500,000 square miles of territory, adding some 20-25% more territory to the United States. And now the United States 
truly does stretch from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Manifest Destiny is now a reality. And when we come back, the final segment in this epic story of Kit Carson. continue with the final segment of the life of Kit Carson. Kit Carson went to the West for the freedom and openness to escape from the constraints of society back home, back in the States. But then, of course, he brought it all with him. The dream of a continental nation has been met, and America stretches from sea to sea. The West is transformed. And he sees it all, but he's also one of the major instruments that brings about that change. Carson is once again dispatched to Washington, D.C. He arrives at St. Louis and then catches a train to deliver Fremont's field reports to President Polk in May of 1847, some three months after his departure. Washington, D.C., at the time of Kit Carson's arrival, was becoming much more sophisticated. And just imagine, this man who had been living most of his life out on the frontier has got to come back to this society. He had to be very uncomfortable. Off the trail, Kit is a shy, unassuming man, content to keep to himself. But in Washington, his celebrity is overwhelming thanks to his real-life heroics and some 70 Kit Carson dime novels that are consumed by Americans from coast to coast. Everyone wants to meet Kit Carson, and that's because Kit Carson is the very living, breathing symbol of the American frontier and of our expansion westward. And, of course, everyone wants to hear from his lips what the opportunities are for America in the West. The runaway apprentice has come a long ways. Carson's married three times and fathers ten children. His first two wives are Indian squaws, but his third wife is a beautiful, slender, 14-year-old Mexican girl named Josefa. She is 18 years his junior. Carson converts to Catholicism, and the two are married in 1843 in the Taos Parish Church. Carson thinks he might spend his remaining years as a peaceful family man. No such luck. 
The wave of migration continues to surge west. Clashes between settlers and Indians escalate into what becomes known as the Indian Wars. We come from the Santa Fe Trail. There's a woman and child, they're both missing. Would you help us? Duty calls Kit Carson once again. A Missouri trader named James White is headed west on the Santa Fe Trail with his wife, Anne, and infant daughter. When their party is attacked by Apache Indians, James is killed, and the infant and the wife, Anne, are taken captive. Carson is illiterate, but if there's a story to be read on the ground, there's no better man to do it. The formative experience for Kit Carson was when he worked as a, a mountain man. His ability to track animals then became a very important asset in his ability to track human beings. That's them. Finally, late on the 12th day, Carson sees plumes of smoke curling skyward in the distance. There's no time to lose. Yeah. Yeah. When Carson discovers the Apache camp, he finds Ann White dead, lying on her back with a steel-tipped arrowhead daubed with rattlesnake blood struck through her heart. She's still warm. Couldn't have been dead more than five minutes. She has been horribly abused, covered with bruises and lacerations. And she's also been gang-raped day after day by her Apache captors. Carson finds something else. Here's a quote from his autobiography. We found a book in camp in which I was represented as a, a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundred. Mrs. White must have read it, knowing that I lived nearby, must have prayed for my appearance in order that she might be saved. Ann White's infant is never found, and the incident haunts Carson until the day he dies. The way that you wander is the way that you choose. Sunshine or thunder A man will always wonder where the fair wind But the Whites are just a drop in the ocean among the tidal wave of travelers rolling westward, a wave that can be traced back to the discovery of gold in California, news of which Kit Carson carried on one of his courier missions back east. In 1849 alone, some 100,000 Americans have set out for California, and the numbers will only increase. Carson was so effective in fighting the Indians and in making peace with them, that by 1853, his appointed Indian agent to the Utes, a band New Mexican officials brand, the most difficult to manage in the territory. The Utes were a very special tribe to Kit Carson. He absolutely loved them. He rode with them, uh, he hunted with them, he knew them quite well. When the Civil War erupts in 1861, Carson resigns as an Indian agent and joins the Union as a colonel of the New Mexico Volunteers. 
He commands two battalions at the Battle of Valverde in 1862, which slows the Confederates from an advance up the Rio Grande Valley. Now, the Apache and Navajo take advantage of the Civil War and renew their raids in New Mexico. Over the previous year alone, more than 30,000 sheep have been stolen and uh, some 300 people killed by the Indians. Carson leads expeditions against both tribes. Carson lived in New Mexico his entire adult life, and public enemy number one was the Navajo. Everybody in New Mexico, every Hispanic person, had some friend or family member who had been killed by the Navajo or had been stolen by the Navajo. And I think he thought a reservation on the Pecos was as good as any that had been put forward as to how to end this cycle of violence. The campaign against the Navajo ends with the removal of 9,000 tribe members to a reservation in New Mexico. The Navajo called the removal the Long Walk and about 200 of them die on the journey. The 53-year-old Carson rides in the vanguard along with some of his favorite Ute warriors or longtime bitter enemies of the Navajo. Carson doesn't like clearing out the Navajo, but the alternative is to ignore their raids in the midst of the Civil War. Here's Pulitzer Prize-winning Indian novelist in Scott Mamaday. He knew the Indians. He had known them from an early time as a mountain man. He probably knew Indians better than any other white man of his time. He knew what uh, they would stand and how they could be brought to terms with the army. And, uh, you know, he didn't hesitate, I think, to, to act on the basis of his knowledge. Before the Civil War ends, Carson is promoted to Brigadier General. Following the war, Carson returns to his family, but duty keeps calling. In 1868, with chest pain so bad he could hardly breathe, Carson brings a delegation of Ute chiefs to Washington to negotiate a treaty, establishing a permanent reservation on the very ground the tribe claims as its own. Here he is, this Indian fighter, known for his various campaigns. And yet, he was also a peacemaker and a diplomat. I think the trick to understanding Carson is to go back to that idea that, for him, there was no such thing as, as the American Indian. He sided with certain groups, and other groups were his enemy throughout his life. Shortly after Carson returns home, his wife, Wasifa, gives birth to their eighth child. But complications set in, and within two weeks, his wife dies, and he's holding her in his arms. Then, just one month later, on the afternoon of May 23, 1868, Carson's aortic aneurysm ruptures. <coughs> calls out suddenly from his pallet of buffalo robes on the floor. Kit Carson passes from life into legend. 
And great job to the whole team, and thank you, Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, and thank you also to Mr. Phil Anschutz and his terrific book. By the way, get it if you can. Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2. So many great stories. We're going to get to a bunch of them. Thomas Jefferson, who starts it all. Of course, Tecumseh, Chief Red Cloud, Brigham Young, Frederick Douglass, George Washington Carver, and Mark Twain. Those stories coming up over the next weeks and months here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 